0: Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Shulman, and I'm coming to you live for a special From Ohio edition. I am here in Ohio with my family, with my mom, and a little known fact about the Product Management Center and the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast is that my mom is one of the reasons why we are all here. She helped me create the vision documents uh, that got approval to launch the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington, and she has helped me prioritize ruthlessly. uh, So even though she wasn't a product herself. She has helped me uh, prioritize the things that really matter. And one of the things that really matter is coming here every single week to make sure that everyone gets access to the best and brightest product managers in the business and to make sure that we enrich the lives of diverse product managers everywhere, not just those who can afford tuition here at the University of Washington or wherever else you may go. So shout out to my mom for doing that. And I'll have to get back to her momentarily. But speaking of, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Thank you
1: for sharing
2: that.
0: (laughs) My pleasure. Yeah. So she is one of the major reasons why we're all here. And she's also one of the reasons why the Product Management Center has the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator Program. We are trying to empower 100 professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role by June 2022. This is about economic opportunity, but it's also about helping companies and helping society uh, develop more inclusive products. And second announcement, so that was my first little tidbit, is that my mom is one of the reasons why we are all here. And the second tidbit is that Amazon is the very first platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. So they are supporting us. They are investing in inclusive spaces for diverse talent to thrive. And their investment is going to help the University of Washington change lives, broaden access to economic opportunity, and lead to innovations that are more inclusive to diverse audiences. So we are so grateful that Amazon is investing in this. And this is your chance to connect with some of the greatest PMs in the business, this Inclusive Product Management Accelerator from a historically marginalized community, trying to get into... To your first product management role we want to help so check out the inclusive product management accelerator you can google it and also thank amazon if you see anybody from there and now sorry that was a long spiel three minutes in i'm so sorry but now we've got to turn it over to today's episode and sumaya tell us a little bit about what we're talking about and why it's important
1: yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff, and for the work you do and for everyone working at uh, the University of Washington Center for Products Management. I think it's a, a lot of work from volunteers and I know you're hiring someone, so always exciting developments there. For today's topic, Tatiana was with us a couple of months ago and we started talking about organizational effectiveness and how to create change in organizations. We talked about top-down, bottom-up, and different ways of how to go about it. I think we want to spend a little bit more time talking about that in details and talking about other organizational aspects that can be important to products managers. Products managers early in their career might not have as much influence as they might want in large organizations, for example, but they do need to learn how to navigate those different spaces. So I think this conversation is going to be relevant to early product managers, as well as experienced product managers who wanna become leaders, who are already leaders. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about, or a lot more from the insights from Nitin and Tatiana here. So welcome, over to you, Jeff.
0: All right, thank you, Samia. You'd always do that so well, I could put you on the spot at any point to tell people why a conversation matters. And we're helping people who are trying to break into product management, who have just started as a product manager, or who have been there for years. And we heard from Tatiana a few weeks ago. She inspired this redo, so to speak. And we are now here with somebody new to the conversation, Nitten. Tell us a little bit about your career in product and maybe just briefly, where have you seen organizational change happen within your product organization? Have you seen it happen from from the bottom up or top down or in between, tell it all.
3: Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff. First of all, I'm so delighted to see the change University of Washington is doing to help the community. I've been very fortunate to be involved with uh, University of Washington from last so many years, and I really appreciate the work all of you in the university are doing to help give back to the community. So regarding me, I actually was, I became a product manager by accident. I was a developer dev manager at uh, I started off at Bell Labs Lucent Technologies and went over to Intel how I became a product manager was because I enjoyed talking to customers and learning about building great compelling vision and capabilities and frankly that really helped me almost 13 14 years back to get into product management and I think the second the, the second part of the question Jeff you asked around how do you see uh, this getting successful I actually see the teams which are super successful actually run a hybrid model where there is a portion of the team which does a lot of bottom-up thinking, which is not just of execution and design, but also about the vision and the strategy to in, in order to create a very good compelling product. So that is area number one, that it has to be a hybrid model that the bottom, the teams, which is the squads or the pods or whatever you call them, those group of peoples with individual responsibilities are able to create a compelling vision for that area of work. For example, if there is a team looking at identity, that they create world-class experiences for identity, end-to-end, not just that particular feature. The second piece is there has to be also an area where in product teams, you have a lot of these cross-functional collaboration because product on its own cannot really define what the success or what the metrics for a product would really look like. So there is so the first piece is it is a hybrid of top-down, bottom up. The second piece, which I see is teams which are super successful, have a lot of very good cross-group collaboration model that how do the teams work with their engineering partners? How is the financial modeling done for potential revenue or bottom line savings? Any of the product uh, features you are proposing to do that particular thing happening. The third thing is also around having a model wherein you always are thinking of customers first rather than competitors. This is an amazing thing I learned at Amazon when I joined Amazon almost 11 years back, that this mindset of being focused on customers rather than competitors. I think that is such a positive way that you are almost customer obsessed or have a customer first kind of mentality. And the last one, if I have to sum it up, is software is built by people, but great products are built by relationship between these people. So the kind of relationships you have between your internal partners, internal, external partners, product, engineering, marketing, because they are so combined well together, it almost has to work like an orchestra. So if you are really running a symphony, no piece in the orchestra has to go bad. So I would really summarize this in these four ways, having a mix of hybrid models, having cross-group collaboration, thinking customer first, and then uh, you know a strong relationship between all the entities who exist in your teams.
0: Jeff? All right. Thank you, Nitin. It's great to have you here. Tatiana, you inspired this conversation because I think you and Sumeya battled it out a little bit as to whether risk tolerance and organizational change should be led top down or bottom up. Tell us a little bit about yourself in case people weren't there for that episode and tell us a little bit about your view on the debate.
2: Awesome. Thanks, everybody. So, I'm going to be a little bit provocative. So I'm an anthropologist um, turned product leader, like like a full-on anthropologist. Like I wrote a PhD in anthropology, you know, did my research in Russia and Mongolia and lived with herders and, and the whole deal. So I'm really interested in culture and how culture changes and organizational culture as well as just culture at large the question is, is it the structures that create the opportunity for people to behave in a particular way? Or is it that people create the structures um, that allow for the institutions to emerge? And you know, as Nitin said, it's it's really kind of both, right? But who are the people who can create and change, right, the institutional dynamics and the culture within the organization? It's either the people who set up those institutions, so the founders and the initial leaders within an organization or it's the people with power. So when we think about how organizations and institutions actually change, unless there's a mass uprising and revolution where the people take power from those in charge, it really, it starts with courageous leaders. It starts with leaders with power who have the power to actually start and have change happen, who can actually restructure the culture and actually allow for avenues of different behavior to be possible and to be rewarded. Otherwise, the people in power, if people start just doing things on their own differently and the people in power don't like it, don't believe it, they have the power to fire those people, right? So over time, what I've seen, and, and by the way, I founded and led IDEO's organizational change practice... So helping companies become more innovative. And over many years of leading that, uh, that practice about five years from my first large-scale organizational change project with Life Technologies that was led by the CEO, and then a bunch of other engagements that were either successful or unsuccessful, what I saw consistently is that the people with power need to be on board with the change. They need to sponsor the change, or at least they need to be really open to change. If you don't have that, organizational change doesn't happen. And you can be the smartest, most amazing person, you know, five or six or 10 layers down in the organization, but without that sponsorship from the top, right, change doesn't really happen. So that's my perspective, and I'm happy to kind of provoke uh, maybe a conversation around that.
3: There is a piece there, Tatiana. I think I think 100% agree with you on wh- what you said about the people and the culture piece. There is also, when, when you look at companies, what is the overall essence of a company? Some companies are really sales-driven. Some companies are engineering-driven. Like, for example, I can say this publicly, Google seems to be a company which is engineering-driven or technology-driven rather than business-driven, right? So when you look at these aspects of how companies dna is or what their culture is like again you can say safely say apple is more a design uh, design driven kind of company rather than a sales driven or engineering driven i think when you have the underpinnings of that particular dna of a company that really defines what the culture it creates and how it incubates any kind of organizational units and how people within those organizational units are encouraged to take risks to build scalable mechanisms, or also build scalable moonshots. I think that is one element of any company that they are never all good in sales, engineering, product, marketing, or so, right? So I think that is one particular element which really defines the DNA of a company and how they actually
0: execute. All right. Let's see, Sumeya. You know, if Red were here, sadly, he's uh, got a prior obligation. <laughs> I think we might get some controversy that we strive for every single show and sometimes get. Sumeya, can you battle it out with the two of them here?
1: Well, I was going to say I agree with Tatiana's point of view about, you know, if you want organizational change, it won't be successful without support or even driving, proactive driving from the top. I have a, just a little bit of a nuanced thinking around this or, a, you know, a, a point I would like to bring up. And that's in the early days, if a team wants to make a change or a team notices that there is something they want to change organizationally, one of the things that the Accelerate Research and DORA Research has found is that teams can start by experimentation at their team level. And then they can use that to show results and sell that change to executive stakeholders who then can take it and drive it across the organization. So while we talk about, yes, effective organization-wide change has to be driven from the top, it can be helpful to show pilots or to show experimentation sometimes at the smaller team level. I'm curious if any of you have seen that happen in real life.
2: So a couple of things. The first thing is that a leader, in in my experience, a leader has created both the bandwidth and the ability for the team to have the the ability to create those experiments, right? So, for example, at Amazon, and I'll start using a bunch of Amazon examples here because I think it's something that we all have in common. You know, I was one of the first kind of original team members on the, on Amazon Honeycode. And we had one hypothesis, which as the GM of the project and the person who wrote the PRFEQ and, and helped get the funding, you know, I did have a lot of power to structure my teams. I got a headcount of 50 people and, and I carved out six of them and said, hey, you guys are going to work on this really far out idea that, you know, and run some experiments and see if it can work. Right? But again, it took a person with the power to actually give that team the bandwidth right? and allow them to kind of work that into their work. Otherwise, they would have been you know, fully staffed, you know, fully allocated with just the work that they needed to do. You know, I think that's one of the things that why a lot of people were inspired by Google's 20% time, frankly, is because most people felt like they didn't have the bandwidth and they didn't have the permission right, to run experiments on their own. And so that 20% time, the reason that idea captured so many people's imaginations was because it seemed like a solution or a potential way that teams who were normally not empowered and didn't have any time to do anything except for their job that their bosses told them to do, to actually have a little bit of leeway. So my question is, how do teams get the bandwidth to create these experiments or create these new ideas or create these new products unless the leaders give them that bandwidth or give them that as at least a goal or at least give them permission to do it?
3: No, I think that's a great point, Tatiana. The organizational support or sponsorship is critical. Absolutely. What I've also seen in my career, both at Microsoft and a Smartsheet, is the institutionalized mechanisms Earlier in the day, Microsoft used to have something like ThinkWeek and then hackathons, which were done over a period of like a couple of times in a year, which allowed a really big array of people across sales, engineering, whosoever. They can come in, they can incubate, try actually creating really good ideas and products which can actually solve key customer problems. And what Microsoft also did, they went a step further They recently had created a company called Microsoft Ventures or also called M12. And what they started doing is whatever these product ideas or product capabilities which were getting created out of these hackathons were actually incubated as companies out of their garage. And I think that was a great example of how you create a lot of this. Yes, there is one way, I think, like you were saying, on carving out specific teams specific charters and giving them this bandwidth and allocation of resources to build something and then there is another stream with creating these hackathons or garage type of programs which allow people to build something of value and uh, you can even monetize it as a company and the third example is if you look at uh, confluent a company which just went public this actually came out of linkedin So there were three engineers. I think one of them was Neha Narkhadeh. And what they did actually was they created the Kafka, which is the stream processing open source implementation. And they created a much beefier version of that. And that also came out as a three people collaboration. And now it's a multi-billion dollar market cap company. But the idea of that started off with these three engineers in LinkedIn who were trying to optimize for Apache Kafka. I do think there is a mix of both which is required the part one which is more structured sponsorship getting the people giving them a charter and then the second piece is more unstructured and then creating more mechanisms like a hackathon or a garage and then allowing people to go with the creativity so that they can build things fail and learn I think there is a mix of both required there.
2: Yeah, but Nitin, isn't it the leaders that also create the mechanisms or that even create, like who creates the hackathon, right? Like the ICs yeah. in a company can't create a hackathon. It's, again, it's the people with power Correct. who create the Correct. hackathon and then they create the conditions, right, of Correct. possibility for something to come out. Okay. So you okay. still agree. always need, it. oh, it's, I believe that, you know, the only way any of these things happen is that the people with power create it. Right, Which is why it's so important for product managers and product leaders who want to change the world to continue to partner up with other people who have a similar vision of the future so that we can gain power together and then actually have a chance at transforming the world.
1: Tatiana, that's a really great point. Can you talk a little more about that, about partnering with others, the power dynamics, why they are so important? I think sometimes when we talk about power, you're able to talk about it very comfortably from an ethnographic studies perspective. There is, I don't think people talk about it as openly. It's understood that there are dynamics of power, of influence, of authority. So I'm curious about How would you break it down? How should they think about power and the way to get it or build it?
2: So the first thing about power is there's two ways of thinking about power. There's individual power and then there's competing visions of the world, right? Which kind of rise or or fall in terms of power. And the thing to remember is that when there is a particular paradigm or a particular vision of the world, there are some people that ascribe to that vision of the world who are in power and it is entirely in their best interest to believe that, to try to make other people believe that power doesn't exist. <laughs> that the reason why they're in the positions that they're in is because of some sort of objective and benign meritocracy, right? That their ideas are just naturally the ones that rise to the top. That's not true. There's a certain paradigm, and there are certain people that are put into positions based on that paradigm where their opinions and their ideas and their ability to control others is just stronger. And so one of the things that I truly believe is that in order for us, when you see something that you know, you're know you like, wow, I have a different vision of the world and I think I can change it, the it's really important to step back and not think that this is like a individual contest, right? Because I have seen people who have tried to change things as individuals, right? And often usually come out very disappointed. But if you can actually put out a vision of the world that other people share, then together, right, and it might actually start mean starting a different company, but together you can actually start to shift that and bring that vision of the world forward, right? And so finding the people, I call them fellow travelers, right? When you identify someone who shares a vision of the world that's like yours, who you feel like you click, who you feel like you have, you know, a similar you know, thoughts and similar ways that you want to structure, like how you move forward. How do you, you know, support each other? How do you help lift each other's ideas up? Because you recognize that they're very sort of close to your own, but also that you recognize that you're like lifting each other up, right? And getting power together. That's in an organizational dynamic. I've always found that having those fellow travelers in an organization is the way to really I mean this is this is called how to succeed in product management but it's really how to succeed right it's really how to climb the ladder faster is to find people who have who share values and visions similar to yours and to lift each other up right and that's the way that's the path to power now It can also be that you both might need to leave the organization at a certain point and do something else, but either find another organization that's more aligned with your your vision and your values so that you can continue to rise, or maybe even found a different, another organization so that you can actually completely shift the power dynamic, right? And have this, this be your own kind of domain.
1: And Tatiana, for PMs, this collaboration and lifting each other up dynamic is something that's part of the work we do. I think it comes up with collaborations with engineering, with design, with other people that we work with every day, but then also with other PMs. Or when we're thinking through new products or have to make compelling business cases or have to convince leadership that, you know, this additional budget for next year is what is needed to get to these outcomes that matter to us. So in, in many ways, we do that. Would it be different the way you're thinking about it? Is it different
2: than that work we have to do anyway? I mean, I think it's different. It's not. So we talk about sort of influence and collaboration, right? But here we're talking about change, right? And we're talking about trying to really trying to rise in an organization faster so that the change you want to achieve is possible, right? So if we agree, right, that those conditions of possibility for change are set by the leaders, then if you want to do that, the best way to do that is to climb in the organization as fast as possible. And the way to do that is to literally work, like, Literally lift each other up, right? So when you, if you meet, meet a fellow traveler in your organization, right? You have a common vision of where the organization should be going. You should literally be talking to their boss and their boss's boss about how amazing they are all the time. Not about how amazing you are all the time, <laughs> but how amazing they are all the time, right? And so this is this is sort of something that I've seen that's worked for me. Something that I've seen work for other people is the more people that you have kind of organically sharing with the top leaders that wow this person is amazing their ideas are amazing like the faster they will rise and they they do it for you as well because they see the same dynamic and then you know that's how you get into the position of power and then you guys start restructuring the institutions and the mechanisms and the company together right like Nitin and I don't know if you remember in the Amazon technical leadership training right a whole like half day was devoted to creating mechanisms, right? Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? And so like the leaders in the organization, once you get to a certain level, that's when then the organization expects you to create those mechanisms, right? Which means that now you can start structuring things along your vision. And I wonder if you experienced that as well.
3: I think that 100% agree with you. I think Tatiana, that's that's a great point. Another thing I remembered from what you shared is also this environment of psychological safety. So for people who are not aware what psychological safety is, it's more like ability or an environment where people can be themselves without any fear of any negative consequence or implication. And that is one of the things I have seen that if leaders are able to create that environment of psychological safety, that people can bring in their ideas, their vision, whatever they are really passionate about. And again, institutionalizing this, whether it is a operation plan review or your spec review, or you're doing a design review, long-term vision planning, whatever rituals or exercise you're doing in the team or the company, the ability for the leadership that you create an environment of the psychological safety that people don't fear speaking up. And if they speak up, there is no negative consequence if they are not following the consensus and things i think is also an environment which helped amazon be super successful that people are not really driven by consensus but by more by alignment i think Atati and i i think that would be really great if we get into more details of how do we scale building as a leader these mechanisms of psychological safety
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, ultimately it comes down, I think, I'm just going to, I feel like a broken record, is that the leader needs to themselves demonstrate that they can be criticized in public. Yep. That is the number one mechanism, I think, for psychological safety, is when a leader encourages, like, one of the things I do when I get a new product manager on my team you know, I have a little user manual, uh, which which I actually learned from my boss Todd Olson. And uh, so he's got he's got a little user manual for himself that he gave to me, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so I created a little user manual for myself, and one of the things, and I share it with all the new PMs on my team. And uh, and one of the things it says is, don't be afraid to criticize me in public, right? If you disagree, disagree, and I might argue with you. And that's perfectly fine. I love to debate publicly. And the thing I like most is being proven wrong publicly. So it's almost like a a shot across the bow, right, to any new person on the team to be like, hey, if you want to impress me, then convince me that I'm wrong because I have strong opinions loosely held. And what I hope is that mechanism of my user manual telling people that they can criticize me publicly can start to send a real message across the team that this is truly a safe environment for debate. What about you, Nitin or Sameo? Any tips from your side? I
1: think about a lot about experimentation and about failure as the number one indicators of psychological safety in an organization. And so, I like it when leadership, when everyone on the team talks about, you know, a failed experiment that we recently did. But here's what we learned from it. The, to me, that creates the kind of environment where people are willing to take bet, make bets, smart bets that might end up not working. But the way we talk about them allows everyone to understand that this is to be celebrated, to be encouraged. We want to continue learning that way. So. Yeah, focus more on failed experimentation and how we analyze and talk about the learning from those instances.
3: That's great points, uh, Tatiana and Sumeya. In my experience, what I've seen is that when this environment of psychological safety is backed by really active listening, humility, Ability to even celebrate failure that you don't really see them as failure, but more like a learning opportunity and building that awareness in you as a team that what are your strengths and what are your areas of improvement. I think those four or five areas really help you scale this thing, not only in your product org, but also to your peers in engineering and across the whole company. And this is something we do really well at Smartsheet. And I can say that publicly, we just got, so this is a public plug for Smartsheet. We just got uh, rated as uh, one of the top 250 companies in the US for organizational leadership and management. And I think this whole culture of awareness, humility, uh, listening, and also bringing that ability to question why did a certain thing fail and what can we learn from it rather than look at it as a colossal failure. I think that really, in my mind, helps you build and scale this environment of psychological safety.
2: So I have an asked from the both of you because yeah, sure. when you talked about celebrating failure, you talked yeah. about learning. When I was at IDEO, we would have clients always say like, oh, how do we celebrate failure more? And it would always puzzle me because I was like, failure is never the goal. Just to be clear, we are here to win. We are not here yeah. to fail. And so, but you also talked about learning, right? So yeah. You know, in my experience, I always tell people I don't celebrate failure, but I celebrate learning that will get us to the next win. So, like, if you did something that failed, like, and you don't have the learning that's going to make the next attempt a winning one, that's not a good thing. I'm not going to celebrate your failure, right? Like, your failure is only going to be, your, your project or your experiment is only going to be celebrated if I believe that what you learned is going to help us win. I celebrate wins and I celebrate the things that get us to the win just to be like, and I wonder why we have this language of celebrating failure. It just puzzles me. I don't, I don't understand it. Can you guys explain it to me?
3: I can give you an example. And obviously I'll not get into specific details of what specifically failed, but I'll give you an example. So in my role at Smartsheet, I I do product management, was doing M&A for a long period of time, uh, product strategy and things, so on and so forth. So one of the things I was leading was really multi-million dollar kind of initiative. And there are things which uh, I, as a leader, did not succeed in converting completely. But because I had that experience of doing that particular initiative by kind of learning from it, the next time I did it, I did a project which was five times the scale of the one where, where I had failed. And I was making sure that whatever learnings I had from that failure, I brought it to the success. And when I say celebrating failure is having the humility, having the courage to accept. Yeah, okay, this is a mistake I did. This is something which could have gone better. And bringing those learnings in a public domain within the company and using it to win something else. That is what I mean by celebrating failure, that you don't hide behind it. You don't claim victimhood you embrace it and say, hey, these are things which failed. These are new things I learned. And from these new things which I have learned, this is the success I got. Because at the end, you're right. If there is failure on its own, I don't think that's what I'm trying to say or Somaya is trying to say. I think it's also that how you, everyone loves this underdog story or a failure to success story. I think that's what I'm really trying to say is celebrating failure. That when you fail and you come back, from behind to win something. That's really the essence of the story here.
2: Isn't that celebrating courage? Isn't that really the thing that we're trying to celebrate? Like the ability for someone to take a risk, even if it's not a safe one, which is being courageous, right? That's what we're trying to celebrate. And then the learning that comes out of it so that the next courageous act right, might be an incredible success.
3: That's a really good way of looking at it. That is true. And I can also give another public example that how Amazon phone, when it was in debuted in 2014 or 15, it was a public failure. But once Alexa came out, a lot of the things what Alexa had was the learnings, what the team at Amazon learned from the Amazon phone debacle. And again, I think Tatiana, you're right. I think that is courage could be a way. But it's also... Like you said, all of us do certain things for winning, right? Courage is absolutely a must. But it's also that I think the ability to, yeah, I think, yeah, you can say that. I think courage is right. I I, I was going somewhere else with this. But yeah, yeah, I I think that's a good summary on that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the semantics of this, I, I don't think I ever put the words celebrate and failure together only because, well, let me let, let me say something that I learned from David Bland, and that's the concept of failure really doesn't matter. It's the concept of learning that matters in the situation. And so the first thing that matters to begin with is the experiment. Why are we designing this experiment We're designing this experiment because we have a hunch that we can win by doing X, Y, Z. And so if that hypothesis proves wrong, we've learned something there that will will allow us to design a better experiment next time. And so the celebration here is really about the learning, is about the experimentation that we've designed. It's about the bets we want to take. But yeah, I think maybe there are better choices of words we can use here. It's a celebration of the, just the mindset around taking bets and learning and building on that learning is, is what's important.
2: Yeah, Sumea, you actually brought up something which is one of my favorite things to, to tell sort of as, aspiring product managers, which is at the end of the day, what separates good product managers from really great product executives and product leaders. Is judgment. So, what one of the things you said is like which bets to take, right? How do you make sure you're making the right bets? And part of, and a big part of that, I believe, is just having good judgment, being able to recognize patterns that other people don't see. As Nitin said, it's you know being customer obsessed more than you know company obsessed or business model obsessed or competitor obsessed, so that you can actually sense the future and sense what what customers will want, right? In 12 to 18 months, not just what they want today. And that kind of piece around judgment, right? And how do product leaders have judgment so that they make th- are making the right bets, right? Um, and every once in a while, they'll fail, right? Because their judgment will be a little bit off. I, I think the Fire Phone was a good example of, you know, one of the times Jeff Bezos' judgment was a little off, but or maybe more than a little off. But having that sort of being able to recognize the future, how do we think about that in terms of how people succeed? What amount of that plays into people's advancement in their product career?
1: Timing plays such a huge role in a lot of the experiments that fail over time. But that's off to the side. I think the the question about judgment, uh, which also comes up sometimes in this phrase, product sense. A lot of people talk about how do you build your product sense? How do you build the intuition? How do you get to this judgment place where you're making more correct judgment calls or accurate or winning judgment calls rather than less. And the common answer is it, you build it over time. The more you practice it, you end up doing it better. It has both a quantitative and a qualitative aspect. It's art and science. I'm actually curious to see what tips do you guys have for building product sense or judgment?
3: The biggest fun for me is it's also it kind of aligns very well with an Amazon leadership principles called being right a lot, and the way for building that judgment skill or the instinct is, I think, seeking very diverse kind of perspectives and in one sense, working towards overcoming your own personal biases or overcoming your disbeliefs. I think that is one of the biggest things uh, you get more attuned to more schools of thought, learning more different perspectives. I think that helps you get better in your judgment calls. If you're a product leader with not a lot of experience in, for example, uh, financial models or engineering, it would be very hard for a product leader to be right a lot or make very good judgment calls or something, which is not just core product, but overall Engineering affected or financial things affected. So the ability to seek those diverse perspectives is one of the biggest ones. And the second one is also being very detailed oriented. That if your beliefs are not backed by detail, those beliefs are not worth holding. So I think I think these are the two tips I would say.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I would say is absolutely following up on that and the Amazon Write a lot leadership principle. I was told that, after a certain level, I think after like kind of l seven or something like that at Amazon, like the number one way that you get promoted is by being right a lot. <laughs> through that Amazon that through that leadership principle. It's like you just have to be right a lot. and And so I think on that, it's absolutely right. And if you read that leadership principle, it is about always seeking out other perspectives, trying to disprove right what you think is right. And again, it's really helpful to encourage everybody to argue with you. I've always found that very helpful. I also really like to argue so you know it works out. But yeah, if you come in with a hypothesis, reward people for disproving your hypothesis, right? Because that will help them see around what again, another Amazon thing, see around corners, right? And see your blind spots. And you know, you might have it all figured out in your head in some way. And you're making your judgment call based on what's in your head, but you also want to get outside of your own head, right? And you want to find the people who are going to challenge you and tell you what you've missed and tell you why you're wrong, right? And you need to incorporate those things into your thinking and evolve your judgment, right? The quicker you can evolve your judgment and the more that you can evolve your judgment, the more likely you are to get to the right judgment call. Right. So it's quick cycles of evolution in thinking, not just in product making that we need to do as product leaders. And the second thing is really kind of going back to the jobs to be done framework. I think if we focus less on what people say they want or need based on the world that they know and really have a truly customer obsessed and empathetic perspective on, what are the fundamental things that people are trying to accomplish and what are the fundamental jobs to be done, right? Then we can actually get to building a product that people will actually value and love, right? Is if we're truly looking at them and looking at the world through their eyes, eyes and through their needs through their jobs, as opposed to, again, just thinking about, like, what does our business, like, revenue require and what does, you know, what, like, focusing entirely internally you know, focusing more externally on our customers and on the world is a way to develop good judgment because ultimately we're all b- building products to sell out to the world. <laughs> and so we need to develop judgment about them, about the customers, about the world and where they're going and where the world is going. So those would be kind of my two things.
1: I love that. Thank you for for sharing your perspective, Nitin and Tatiana. If anyone in the audience wants to join us on stage, if you have a question, please raise your hand. We have about 10 minutes, so we'll be happy to bring one or two people up to participate. One more question for you around advice you have for PMs on how to create systems or frameworks that would work, not just for their team but for other teams and how to influence other teams. I'm not thinking organizationally. I'm thinking, for example, I hear from PMs around challenges with not being able to use user-centered design as much as they want or some of the techniques that people use for user research because the organization doesn't have that as part of its culture. But then they can still, they can still do some of it at that point, do you recommend the PM leaves the organization or should they try to do something about it?
3: If I can take some, one, one of the things with PM is that you never give up. I think this persistence should be your superpower. The ability to influence without like authority is actually the name of a PM. I think when you say, hey, they should leave the group, actually, then you're not really a good PM. I think what needs to happen is if there are certain things you see a gap in, user research technique whatever is whatever is your beef you you don't see that happening in the team it is your charter it is your mission to make sure you are able to influence and impact your teams so that they see value in what you're really trying to bring in. So absolutely, you have to make a logical case. You have to make the right level of merits. And also, if you see any any disadvantage with doing that and trying to convince the team, that's the role of the PM, right? So I think leaving is not an option. That should be the last option. But I think is persuasion skills, ability to influence, ability to impact. I think those are the ways how I would measure or encourage PMs who face kind of roadblocks like this.
2: I'm going to disagree with Nitin, which is show the value of user-centered design, you know, to your CPO, to your CEO. If they don't buy in, life's too short, go find another organization. (laughs) You don't want to spend your, your life is so short. Your ability to do amazing things in the world is limited and it's finite. You don't want to wake up 10 years from now and say, what have I been doing and why have I been in, like fighting, like beating my head against the wall in the status quo? There are lots of opportunities out there right now for product managers. Go find the organization where you feel your talents are valued, where you feel closely aligned with the vision and values of the leadership. And if, they, if the organization that you're in is not aligned with what you love and you don't really respect the opinions of the people that you work for... There are other organizations. Life is too short to waste a minute of your time with leaders that you don't respect.
3: I think, Tatiana, that is fair. But it's also, you have to give it a try, right? It can't be you just send in an email and people don't respond, then you quit. I think there is a fine balance between the two, right?
2: Yeah, but if, again, if you just don't feel that your <laughs> your leaders are aligned and if you don't really want, if you, one, I actually did quit a job once when I looked around And I said, would I actually, if I actually turned out like any of the leaders in my organization 15 or 20 years from now, would I be happy about who I was? And I actually looked at all the leadership in the company and I was like, no. And I quit quit right then and there, right? And if you find yourself in that situation, life's too short.
3: Good point, good point.
2: (laughs) I think this begs
1: the question of what are some of the, the deal breakers? Because for everyone, depending on what matters to them, for example, I know PMs that, Will not spend more time in an environment where there is no psychological safety. I'm one of them. You know, you do as much due diligence as you can during the interview process while talking, to, you know, talking to other people who have worked at the company. But then once you're on the ground, you can find out the truth of the matter. (laughs) And so there are certain things that I agree with Tatiana are not really worth the aggravation, the angst, the headache, whatever you want to call it. And then there are other things that are really all about the grit and are worth it. So again, like everything else in product management, there's tension and balance here. Mara, welcome. Thanks for your patience. What question do you have for Nitin or uh, Tatiana?
4: Thank you. Um, well, actually, I just wanted to make a quick comment um, going back to your product sense question. And um, I'm a product designer, uh, UX and UI, and I would just um, encourage you know, companies to you know, make sure that their UX teams, and of course, you know, PM should always be you know, very closely tied uh, to UX. You know, don't forget about really interviewing and establishing great relationships with your internal teams that often touch the customer more often than even your, you know, UX teams do. You know, there are people, especially if you've had people in your customer service teams that have been with the company many years, you know, they can have incredible insight because they may be speaking with the customer all about their pain points for 15 minutes to even 40 minutes, you know, all day long, and, you know, can almost rattle off a top 10 list of features and problems in your software that really confuse customers, things like this. So, you know, it's no replacement for actually doing the UX research and talking with your actual customers, of course. That's most important, you know, doing that directly. But it's really important, you know, to get out of your little silo in designer UX and meeting and speaking about the customer and those teams, you know, direct experiences as well and feeding that into your research um, because you know, really, you know, customer service or customer success, you know, can often be the voice of the current customer. And, you know, speaking with your sales teams, you know, they can often be the voice of the future customer, you know, and what they're going through and what, you know, their competition that, uh, you know, they're considering instead of your product. And also your marketing team can be the voice of the market. So I just want to make that little comment. Thank you. I'm complete. (laughs) Thanks, Mara. I'd love to get Tatiana
1: in. What's your perspective on how often should product teams collaborate with these other teams? How do you balance feedback? I know sometimes there's tension with sales teams who, you know, ask for certain things. And how do you figure out whether that's just for one client or 20 clients? Can you talk a little more about organizationally? How do you set up? these kinds of interactions and collaborations for success?
4: Yeah,
3: yeah, sure. I can. Okay. So the first biggest one is these have to be regular, regular setup meetings rather than, I think, just based on that periodic, regular reviews with these teams. So that is number one. Number two is what I love to do with my engineering counterparts is have them work very closely with them as compared to as compared to like how we would work with sales. So what we do is have an institutional review. Like every eight weeks, uh, have a six pager on how we are doing as a business, which talks about review of your business, what are the sales blockers, what are the product capabilities you're building. So those kind of uh, institutional mechanisms, um, like talking to your sales, CSM and things like that every six to eight weeks, but more frequent interactions with your engineering counterparts, because you're building the product together with the engineering counterparts. So make them frequent, make them periodic. Number two is write a lot of docs. Because when you write, it gives you more clarity rather than doing the slide deck. And number three is having clarity of thought. That as a product leader is very essential that whoever partners you're working with, they understand what you're really trying to build, why you're trying to build, and what is the time frame within which you're trying to build. I think that gets alignment across the board. So these are the top three things, I would say.
2: I completely agree with Nitin on that one. And one of the things that that really make these trade-offs hard is that As product managers, we're always trying to balance what are the short-term sort of known things that we need to build with the longer-term unknowns, right, in terms of discovery research and trying to get, you know, completely get beyond incremental innovation, get beyond solving sales objections or known customer pain points to larger opportunities, to true innovation that unlocks the market. And this is where, in a world of unlimited resources, we would never have to choose between the two, right? We could do both, but in a world of limited resources, which is the world we live in, right, the salespeople and the customer success folks and the marketing folks always, they have the knowns right in front of them. Like, these competitors have these features and we need to do that. Well, you know, okay, that would be our whole roadmap for the next five years. When do we actually make time and space for discovery? And the difference between, and we need to balance those two things as product uh, product leaders. So the difference between what salespeople are incentivized to do is they're trying to make the sale this month, this week, this quarter, right? It's very much like make, you know, for those of us who worked in B2B SaaS software, it's like make every month, right? That's, that's the mantra of the salespeople. And so they are trying to get the sales objections checked off, because that is what's staring them in the face to make this month. But as product leaders, right, we need to be looking out, you know, past the horizon, we need to not skate to where the puck is today or this month, we need to start to skate to where the market and the world is going in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, which is the time that it will take to actually build a whole new, you know, really revolutionary product experience. right? And so that's where the real friction right, ends up is because a lot of the teams that we work with aren't incentivized at all, right, to be looking past the horizon. They are fully incentivized to make this month and make this quarter. And we need to respect that and make sure that the big deals that they're trying to make this month, right, that we pay attention to those. You know, so I do tell, you know, my product managers, if there's anything, if there's a seven-figure deal, we drop everything and address that. If there is, you know, a high six-figure deal, we address that immediately. We bring it up and try to rejigger the roadmap. If there's a low six-figure deal, then, you know, we look at it and try to figure out how to rejigger. If it's less than that, then we take it on a case-by-case basis in terms of how we rejigger the roadmap. So there is a sense, right, where we need to help their sales team make their numbers. But at the same time, we also, as product leaders, need to start skating and making the space for our teams to skate to where the puck is going to be 12 to 18 months from now. And that's really the hard part of our jobs.
0: All right. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you, Nitin. We usually have Red Rusak here as our co-host and he keeps the train on time and I let it all lapse. So I apologize for that, but it was such a great conversation. I just wanted to let these three product executives do their thing. Speaking of doing your thing, Nitin, it's time to do your thing with some concluding thoughts. Anything you want to leave the audience with after this wonderful hour of conversation?
3: No, no, I I think it's such an amazing conversation and I want to tell everyone who's listening in, Tatiana and me are amazing amazing friends, she's been a mentor to me, I really look up to her so it's just because we are disagreeing doesn't mean we're not friends and you know, this is also the ability to disagree and debate is such an integ- integral quality. And I give so much credit to Tatiana to always, even to her mentees or people she works with, to create an environment where you can disagree with him or her in public. And you have seen this right now. So kudos to her.
2: Thank you, ditin I also admire you and all the work that you've done. And yeah, a couple of things like celebrate courage in yourself, in your leaders, Also remember that your leaders are also self-conscious, also need positive feedback, also need validation. If a leader above you has done something courageous and they stuck their neck out, celebrate them as well, right? We're all just human beings. We all have the same fragilities and egos. And the other thing that I will just kind of ask us to think about as product leaders is how do we grow together? right? How do we actually celebrate the things that we value? And how do we create power around the things that will make the world truly better in the future? So that those are the things that we're building more and more of, right? We create, at the end of the day, we can, by lifting each other up, getting power, and then reorganizing, right? What does growth and what does success mean? We can actually really change the world, not just our our organizations, but also the world.
0: I love it. And that's quite in line with what we're trying to help people do through the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. But before I blabber on about that and how excited we are about empowering new voices into product management, Sumeya, any concluding thoughts on today's conversation?
1: I always learn when I'm in the same room as Tatiana. So thank you for talking about power. That was a really important concept that I know I don't think about enough or talk about enough. You know, within the emotional intelligence framework, those four points, there is one point around emotional intelligence and awareness of your environment or like the political dynamics in your organization. But the power piece is not something I think about as much as I should. So thank you for that. Nitin, it has been a pleasure to listen to you and all the different examples you shared with us from successes and failures failures at the different companies. So I appreciated today's conversation. Hopefully we get to have many more. Back to you, Jeff.
0: All right. Red would be so sad to have missed some tension that we've always tried to create. Product managers are always great at agreeing with one another. And so it's good to see agreement and disagreement, but respectful and a fantastic dialogue that makes us all stronger. Uh, What's the phrase when iron strikes iron? It uh, strengthens them both. So thanks for uh, a very great conversation today. In closing, I just want to remind everybody that the Product Management Center at the University of Washington is a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. We are taking... The faculty, the interdisciplinary faculty, the amazing product managers uh, that we have among our alumni, the amazing future product managers that we have among our students, and the connections to people like Tatiana and Nitin. And we are using this to help everybody. Uh, We want to do, as Tatiana was saying, make the world a better place. I know it's cliche, but we really do want to enrich the lives of diverse product managers and empower product managers to enrich the lives of diverse audiences. Really excited about the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator Program. We have 46 members of the inaugural cohort And we are trying to empower 100 professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role by June 2022. And we are excited that Amazon is putting their money where their mouth is, and they are investing in this program with both time and money. They are our first platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, investing in inclusive spaces for diverse talent to thrive. And we can't wait to help our Future cohorts uh, get connected to Amazon and some of the best companies in the world and learn from some of the best product managers in the world as we work together with companies like Amazon and others to change lives, broaden access to economic opportunity, and lead to innovations that are more inclusive to diverse audiences. Again, this was a special Ohio edition of How to Succeed in Product Management. We are here every single week, not in Ohio, but at 4 p.m. Pacific time. And today I was in Ohio with my family. And I want to again, give that shout out to my mom who helped make this product management center what it truly is. So if you have a moment, Carol Shulman, thank her somehow, some way, have a drink in her honor here today. Anyway, (laughs) I digress. But thank you for being (laughs) here. And thank you, Sumeya. It's a pleasure being here every week. And we will see you next week on how to succeed in product management. Thank you, everybody, and have a good night.